If you'll open your Bibles, please, to the second letter of Paul to the Corinthian church. So 2 Corinthians, and we'll be reading chapter 3 together. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we, as some others, epistles of commendations to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as you are... Sorry. (laughs) For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart, And such trust we have through Christ to Godward. Not that we're sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also has made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, So that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of the condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious... How much more that which remains is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which was abolished. But their minds were blinded. For until this day remains the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we want to bow in your presence and we want to tremble under your word that is eternal and lasting and is something that we could truly build our lives on. Father, we understand very little. Our sins have made us sleepy and groggy and and stupid um, so that right in front of our faces we do not see what we should see. But we pray that your spirit would enliven our minds and our hearts and make us willing to uh, give all to the Christ who gave all for us. We ask that you would that you would allow us to to look clearly at what your word really says, and that we would do do as you would see fit this hour. And we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. So Paul is writing to a uh, to a church that he planted. So he planted a church in Corinth, which was probably one of the most fabulous cities of the ancient world. So if you can imagine the cities that are in the world right now, there's only a few top, top top-tier cities. 
And I would imagine Corinth would probably be about like New York City. So we're talking about not a capital of a country, but in terms of wealth, in terms of sophistication, in terms of, of just, just dazzling quality, this was probably one of the, the jewels in the Roman Empire. It was on the Aegean Sea, and Paul went there along with other, uh, other cities and other places and shared the gospel with simple people. And most of the people that were in this church initially were the lowest of the low. So the slaves and the low workers. And then as the gospel grew, you had people who were fabulously wealthy and people who were very intellectual and people from every ability. And you'll see that in churches now. God doesn't pick and choose based upon your pedigree. He has allowed you to see what most people will never see. And he gives you grace every single day. And he did this in this church. And this church was dear to him. He was the pastor of this church for two years. So every day he taught. And he loved these people. And if you've ever read the two letters to the Corinthians, you'll see that of all the churches in the New Testament, these people were a mess. They were a mess like teenagers are messes. Okay? Not because they're not alive and not because they don't love you and not because you don't love them, but because they're everywhere and they, they have high hopes and they're easily led astray. And Paul was constantly worried about them. And what had happened lately was something was sneaking into this church that was sneaking into almost every church in the, in the Mediterranean. And that was that they were really smart, really good-looking perfect preacher hair, people that were coming in to their congregation and saying, well, first of all, they were saying, Paul's not even an apostle. I don't even know why you're dealing with Paul. Paul, who's Paul? He wasn't a disciple of Jesus. You shouldn't even listen to him. And by the way, if you truly want to please God, the gospel is okay. It's fine for, to get in the church, but if you really want to pre- please God, you need to do everything that God said, everything that you see. You need to follow all the lists, all the rules, all the thousands of rules. You need to be a legalism. That's what we need. We need somebody to be strong, someone to take it seriously. And they were insisting that these Gentile believers, who had nothing whatsoever to do with Judaism, that they were completely living as Jews, that they were to observe all of the ceremonies and all of the rituals. They were going to make them go and get an operation to prove that they were serious about being godly. And Paul is sitting in prison or sitting in in another city and getting a letter of report and saying, oh, no, 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 that's not what you do. You do not please God through the law. If you please God through the law, you have to be as flawless as God himself. No, you do not do this. And so Paul is writing And his letter begins rather snarkily. I mean, Paul had a personality. He was a very smart guy. But he was also a very humble fellow and very easy to despise. That's why it was easy for these false teachers to come in and say, why are you even listening to this guy? Who is this fellow? He was supposedly, according to uh, to ancient tradition, very ugly man, not not kind of hard to look at. He was short. He was bald. He had a big hook nose. He didn't speak plainly. He had health problems. He was, uh, he was working, working. He was brilliant, but he wasn't slick. 
Like he, he couldn't convince you that you were really proud to have him as your boss. You would almost have to feel sorry for him in some strange way. And he, and Paul in his letter said, my sufficiency isn't because I'm awesome. That's not why I'm sufficient. God makes me sufficient. And by the way, do I need to give you my report card to show you that I should have anything to do with you? Do I have to have a letter from someone saying, hey, you really should pay, pay attention to Paul. He's awesome. You should really, he, you, he's what you want. No, you know me. You know if I'm a wicked man. You know if I'm, if I'm a greedy man. You know if I'm trying to take advantage of you. You know what my heart is. You know if I love God or not. You know if God's used me or not. Or not. And his first argument here is that's my proof. You want my proof as an apostle? You are in Corinth as Christians. That's my proof as apostle. What an what a absolute miracle that would be if someone is dead and now they're not dead. Someone who is a pagan worshiper and filthy is now living and pleasing the Lord. Is that not a miracle? Would it not be as much of a miracle to have 15 or 20 or 50 or 100 or 500 Christians in a room as to have 50 or 100 or 500 dead people crawl out of their grave and meet together every week? It's just the biggest miracle. He said, you're my letter. Just the fact that you exist is proof that God is working through me. And, and so he is, I love how he starts this because he said, God has written you as a letter. God wrote the letter. I didn't write the letter. He said, I ministered to you, but God wrote a letter and he didn't write a letter like he used to write. And he pulls you back to Sinai. And he said, God didn't write a letter with his finger into a rock, into a stone, carved in stone. Instead, he wrote a letter in you in the soft part of your life, in the squishy part of your heart. That's where he wrote a letter. And by the way, it's more impressive for God to write a letter in you, at you being weak in every way, you being tending towards your sin in every way, for God to say, this is my proof that I'm God of heaven and earth. So these people are not just Paul's uh, letter, saying that Paul was an apostle and proving that God was working through Paul. God was using a letter to prove that he's God. Now, that's amazing. When you say God created everything, he created volcanoes. He created star systems. But he is showing himself to be master of everything by taking a simple person and writing his law on their heart so that not only do they have something that they know about him, but they want to obey him, they want to love him, and they're willing to be taught. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have dealt with a letter. If they weren't teachable, if they weren't changeable, if they were not repentable, then Paul would have basically said, I'm sorry, I can't do anything. But he wanted them to come back. And so he starts with that very simple picture of God writing a letter on a stone and then comparing it to God writing a letter in these people's hearts. And he's basically this letter, which is one of my absolute top favorite chapters of the Bible, especially the the stuff we'll do later. I I won't get to it this week, but the next time when we finish this chapter where God is looking at the the Old Testament and the New Testament and showing the difference and showing the beauty of what the gospel is. It is dazzling. And the word glory, 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 there's 40 times. Glorious. It's glorious. The gospel is glorious to look at it. Now, his point, too, is that the law also is glorious. So 
we now have a comparison. What is it we're talking about? We're talking about the old covenant and the new covenant. Now, a different way of saying the old covenant and the new covenant is the, t- the word testament. So when the whole Bible was finished, you had the old dispensation of the old covenant, and you had the what is now in Christ, and it's the new covenant, but they called it the New Testament. So the New Testament and Old Testament is the same as the old and new covenant. So what's a covenant? A covenant is a promise. A covenant is a promise made between two parties that has something contingent upon it. So you have to see that there were promises all the way back. So God made a promise to Adam and Eve that he was going to deal with the problem of the serpent and that Eve's son one day would be a dragon slayer. He made a promise. That's going to happen. And they, they were waiting for it. Even Adam and Eve thought, okay, it's, happen- it's going to happen any day. And their godly line passed all the way through the centuries and then through Noah, and then it kept going. And then we see that God befriended a man named Abraham. Later, an Abraham who was a, an idol worshiper from a foreign country. And he befriended him and he said, I'm going to give you children. So many children that you couldn't count them. If you looked at the stars and you could count the stars, you've got to have more than that. If you could count all the sand on the beach, you would have more children than that. And I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to give you a promise that your descendant will be a blessing to every nation in the earth. And Abraham simply believed him. And so there was a covenant, but it was a very interesting covenant. It started with you, you cut the covenant. This is such an old way of thinking. We don't, even, we don't make contracts this way. But what you would do is you would hack an animal into two pieces, and then the two people that were making the contract would walk through the pieces. And essentially what you're doing is threatening each other with being hacked to death. Do you see that piece of a carcass? If you break the contract, that's you. Okay? And the other one was like, oh, yeah, well, that's you. And it's the idea of the, this is going to be a witness against us. When Abraham went to walk through the pieces with God. God showed himself as a lamp that was glowing. Abraham got really sleepy and just laid down and went to sleep. And God went through the pieces. God was saying, I'm going to make a covenant with you, but you're not going to be able to break it because I don't trust men. Men break contracts. They break covenants. And I am going to make sure that you can't break this one. So I'm going to go through for both of us. I'll make sure that I prom- what I promise you will happen. So the next time we see a covenant, he has pulled his people, the descendants of Abraham, out of slavery in Egypt, and he brought them out into a mountain, and the mountain is Sinai in the middle of nowhere. Mount Horeb, but also it's called Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. And he then meets with the representative, Moses, who's led these people out miraculously. God just dazzles the world. And he gives them his contract. And he said, it's, it's between you and me. I'll make a promise. You make a promise. I'm going to promise to be your God. I will take care of you. I'll be your husband. I'll be your father. I'll be your provider. I'll be your blesser. I'll be your protector. Everything that you need, I'll be there for you. And you will be my people. You will obey me perfectly. You will love me with all your heart. And it will be forever a covenant between me and you and every one of your family for all generations. And they said, yeah, okay, absolutely, yes. Yes, we'll do it. 
And so Moses goes up on the mountain, and God, with his own finger, carves ten commandments into the law, into these tables. And Moses walks down the mountain to give these ten commandments to the people. And when he gets to the bottom, all the people are dancing around a golden calf, celebrating because finally they knew who their God is. On the very first day, before it even turned noon on the first day, Israel broke the everlasting covenant that was to be forever and always fixed in the heavens. And they proved that they were covenant breakers, not promise keepers. And for centuries, they continuously broke everything that God had said, even though God was faithful to them. And they broke it, and they broke it, and they broke it, and they broke it. So you're going to see that this law was broken, and God knew that it was broken. So my first question to myself is, why would God give a law that would he knew that nobody would keep? Is it just for what, just for ink in the Old Testament? Is it something to ignore? Is it something that we have something to do with? Okay. Now, when we say the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments was a summary. That was what was written down on the tables, later stored in the Ark of the Covenant. And it wasn't all the law. There were about 636 laws of Moses. Okay? Very, very detailed laws. And it was broken into three different categories. So the first category was the civil law. The civil law was about the nation of Israel. Right? So this was... What does a king do? What are his, what's his responsibility if you have a king of this country? Or how do you conduct war? What does that look like if you are going to attack someone? What are the laws about that? Or what's the laws about debt? Or what's the laws of these various laws that basically distinguish this nation from all other nations? So God would not let them serve other gods. He wouldn't let them consult witches or, or consult the dead for what's going on. He wanted them to be his He was holding their face in his hands, and he was saying, you don't look at these godless nations that are around sacrificing their children. You don't do such things. So all of these laws were specifically for the nation to make that nation protected, shielded, as God then worked in their life. The second part of the law, and probably the largest section of the law in terms of the number of, of commandments, was called the ceremonial law. And the ceremonial law was specifically how do you how do you worship God? So there's going to be a festival, there's a Passover, there is a there is the the feast of trumpets, there's the feast of weeks, there's a feast of booths. What is it that you're to do? All these specific things that you're due to worship me. And if you do approach me, how does that happen? Does anybody just come anytime? And do you bring anything you want? Can you worship me in any way that occurs to you? No. You come in a very specific way because God had to protect these people from himself. Your worst problem in your life is that God is holy. That is your worst problem. If God weren't holy, things would be fine. But God is your maker, and he sets the standards for your behavior, and he's holy. And that is terrifying. And God had to protect the people from himself. And there was an entire huge group of priests that had very specific jobs that had to do very certain things. There was dozens of different sacrifices that had to be offered, all of them for different reasons. 
And every single sacrifice was only to be done if you sinned accidentally. There was no sacrifice for anybody that did something on purpose. Nothing. You had no hope. If you sinned against the God on purpose, you're done. But if you sinned accidentally, didn't know what you were doing, and stumbled into a sin, and you offended God, he allowed you to be brought back into relationship with him. But it had to be done very, very specifically. So he talked about there was a tabernacle and it was all representative, very pictures and everything had to be done. And there was there was cleansings and washings and and diet and you had to wear certain things and you couldn't do something and you had to not work on certain days and you worked on other days. And there were whole years that you didn't work. There were law after law after law after law. And these laws represented Jesus. They were pictures of Jesus. All of these laws pointed forward to Jesus Christ. It pointed to his life, to his office, to his death, to his obedience. And it was a way for God to show himself. The third part of the law was the moral law. And the moral law is what is God like? See, it's very, very scary in modern day America because we have this idea that, we have a, that we have, we're a Christian nation of sorts and that we all understand what it means to say God. So when the Mormon missionaries are coming talking about God or the Buddhists say God bless you, how disturbing is that? Because the Mormon God is not Jehovah in any way. And, and the Buddhist God, whatever God means to a Buddhist, though he'll say, God bless you. The first time I ever heard a Buddhist say, God bless you, I just absolutely breathed in. I went, what? Like, why would he say that? Except that that is totally normal. So when, when the Congress stands up on the Capitol steps and sings, God bless America, do you truly believe that our leaders are thinking that Jehovah, the father of Jesus, is our God? If so, they would obey him. No, we have, a, we have a God that we made. We have a God that's manipulable, that we've made in our image in such a way that we're comfortable. That way it's, a, it's socially acceptable. Good people are religious people. Now, that's, that's changed over the last 50 years, but not so much. Pretty much you have this idea. As long as you're, as long as you're sincere, you're fine. But God gave the moral law. He gave the moral law to show himself so that when you, you don't need to make up God for yourself. You don't have to say, oh, I think God is, mm, uh, and just make a conception of him because that's what most people in the world do. Most people say, I want my God to be a woman or I want my God to, I don't know, do this or that or allow this or that or, or promote this or that or celebrate this or that. Whatever I decide is the way I'm going to do it. My God loves it because he's love. Okay? That is what most people do. God insisted that we know the truth. So he gives his law so that we know who he is. And, he, and we're not in any ways mistaken. So if I were to write a picture, a stick picture of Brian there on the bottom of the blackboard and say, well, where's God? My first thought would be God's up here. And so I'll put a line up here. See, here's God and here's me. God is above me, which is a a wonderful idea to start with. But when I look at the law, when I look at really what it is, I now say, oh no, God's not just above me. He's infinitely above me. It's, there is no, there's no amount of space between me and him because if I make it a million miles 
That's laughable. He's way more than a million miles above me. He's not, he's not just bigger than me. And he's not just infinitely bigger than me. I don't even know what that concept is. What's infinitely bigger mean? Okay, he's not just bigger or, or stronger or nicer or holier. He is in a different category than me in all respects. And his law shows it to me. So when the Ten Commandments were put on the, the stone and put into the ark, the, above the ark was the mercy seat made out of gold, and there were two cherubim angels covering their faces. And when God manifested himself to the people, he glowed in an orb of light above the mercy seat. Not because God is two feet by three feet. That's not how God is. God doesn't, the whole earth couldn't even be his footstool. There's not, it's not a matter that you can put God in a box. God can't be put in a box. But he showed to his people because he, his people needed him. They had to have some conception. And so as he dwelt there, he was continuously looking at his law. The law that will judge us. The law where I will stand and be judged against that law. So when you say, are you as tall as God? You have to be. Are you as good as God? You must be. There is nothing other than that. Okay? Cursed be the man forever cursed. Unless you are like God himself. And God is continuously looking at his law 24 hours a day. But see, there was something eventually that we see that there's blood poured on the top of the mercy seat, below that orb of light, and God now looks at his law through the blood. So this law is eternal. This law is necessary in our lives. And if I read the law every day of my life, it wouldn't be enough. Because it is the law that shows me who God is. It's also the law that shows me who I am. Because if I think God's standard is just God like God is love or God loves me or whatever, if that is my standard, then what happens is that I can forgive myself of anything. I can live any way I please and just think God loves me. Or God put, you know, God gives me bonus points. Okay? All right, I've got a 92. I think in my mind, I got a 91 or I got a 71 or you might even be more practical and say, okay, I got a 59.4 and I need a little shove to go over the line. Okay. God doesn't give bonus points because what's happening is when you look truly at the law of Moses, when you look at the, at the moral law of God, you are now crushed. You're crushed under the weight because now you see what God will truly grade you on, and there's no curve. God doesn't grave on a curve. When you see that, one of several things happens. It will either make you totally despair. I know people that would never enter a church, not because they don't say they believe God, which they do. They simply don't want to be like you. In their minds, you don't live the way you're supposed to, but yet you claim to. And that's what I've heard people say. I wouldn't get there. It's hypocrite it, for me. to. I know that God, that I'm not good enough. I know that. So I'm not going to even try. That's despair. There is, not, there is not a sin worse than despair. For you to despair means there is no hope for you. And Jesus came to die for you. There is hope for us. You do not have to despair. Though, that's actually a more, in my mind, that's actually a, a more honest approach. When you look at the law and say, that's what you're judged as, and you just go, fine. 
Let's eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There really isn't anything else we can do. Let's just get as much as we can and have as much of a time, live our, our three score and ten, and then go to our, our reward, whatever that reward would be. That is what many, many people do. Most people don't. Most people don't. What they'll do is they'll look at it and say, oh, of course it doesn't mean that. We're all human. And so they simply forgive themselves. Now, they're really offended if you sin against them, but they forgive themselves anything. It's really easy. I think, well, of course I can go to heaven. Well, of course God's going to give me. Why would, if God was a good God, he wouldn't send me to hell. No, 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 no. I, I think, um, of course I'm going to go to heaven. All dogs go to heaven, right? And there are people all over this earth that think that they're going to do enough or if they maybe do more good than bad or somehow they've got scales in their mind. And remember, this is that concept of God that they made up for themselves. It's not the concept of God that God displayed for us through his law. Okay, So you have these three. Now, here's the, here's the idea. The moral law, who, who is God, is always going to stand. And you will be judged against who God is. And you must be as clean as God to be accepted in his presence. God does not coexist with, with filth. You don't put an ice cube next to the sun. They can't be friends. The, the sun is not mad at the ice cube, but I promise you put it even close, and that sun is just going to just evaporate it. It's just an outflashing of God's holiness, and he cannot coexist with me as an, an unholy man. So remember, that was the purpose of all of these laws, it was to protect people from God's own holiness because God is something that he's showing in his scriptures that maybe people didn't realize, and that is he's a savior. But he saves not through the law, but the law is totally necessary for a person to get saved because if you think that you can do well enough, you've deceived yourself, and there is no hope for you. But if you look into the beautiful law and it crushes you, Okay, it crushes you, then you will look for mercy. You will look, is there mercy for me? Is there mercy anywhere for me? And when you see the beautiful mercy of God in the person of Jesus, it is now what you want. You don't have, you're not bored. You are dazzled. You want it more than anything. You'll trade anything. Give me something to sell that I might buy that field that's got the treasure in it. I want it. Because you now know what it is. So I want you to know first that the law was never intended to save us. Never. But it was totally necessary and not one person will ever come to the Lord without looking into the holy law of God and realizing that they did not match, that they didn't meet it. They have to look. Now, I'm going to take you to three or four places in the scriptures uh, to sh- basically tell what, what Paul is saying. He said, the spirit gives life, but the letter killeth. Okay? So let's first of all look at the new covenant. This is Jeremiah 31. So we're going to read just a couple verses in 30, 31. So start in verse 31. So Jeremiah 31, 31. This is one of the prophets. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, the day that I took them by the hand out of Egypt, which my covenant they break. 
although my, I was a husband to them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the first to the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sins no more. So though the law is forever, eternal, God never intended it for it to be your savior. And he, he said, there is a law, a day coming where I will make a new covenant with you, but I'm not going to write it on stone. That doesn't help you. All it does is condemn you. The law is nothing but a, but a medical test that tells you you're going to die of this disease. It doesn't he- even help you with a headache. It does nothing to help you. It does nothing to allow you to want what he, you need to do or to change. And it doesn't do anything about the past that's already done. You're condemned already. The law only tells you for certain, forever, and everyone else in the world, that you are a sinner and that you deserve to die. That's all it does. The new covenant is written on your heart with the spirit that allows you to want what God wants for you. So there's something new, always intended. Okay? Um, a teacher of the law came to Jesus and said, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it's, it's interesting. You come to Jesus crushed, and Jesus gives you mercy. You come to Jesus strutting, and Jesus gives you law. He goes, you know the law. What does the law say? And Mr. Smarty Pants says, Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus doesn't even miss a beat. He goes, yep, that's right. Do that and live. Do it and live. Now, this is, this is God himself saying that. Do it and live, right? Because right now, obviously, you think you're doing it. You think you're pleasing the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Have you ever in your whole life Love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, even for a moment. It's required of you every second of your life. From birth till death, you must love him always. So, so do it and live. That's, that's the Old Testament. Now, I wanted to take you to Romans chapter 3. Because this is Paul dealing with this in every church. This same problem is going in every church that you must obey the Old Testament all the time. So in chapter 3, in 19, this is what Paul tells the Romans. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it says to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is knowledge of sin. So what is the law for? It shuts me up. It shuts my mouth. It doesn't allow me to be smug and think I'm fine. It doesn't allow me to think that I'm fine with God, that I'm, that I'm going to heaven. It does not allow me. It makes me put my hand over my mouth and calls me a sinner. That's what it does. Now, as Paul was wrestling with this in his own life, in chapter 7 of Romans, in the same letter, this is what he says. This is 7-7, seven, seven, a couple of chapters more. What do we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. I hadn't known sin but for the law. For I hadn't known lust, except for that the law said you shall not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be death. 
For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it slew me. At our school last year, we had a a milk cooler uh, with all the little milks in it. And someone on the top of the milk cooler had written in a piece of paper, do not unplug the milk cooler. Now, I understand why you would not want to unplug the milk cooler. And, you know, that milk is worth $500 and you don't want the milk cooler to go bad and all the milk to go. But don't put a sign on the top of the milk cooler that says don't unplug the milk cooler because I promise I wanted to unplug it. And so did every other person that ever saw the sign. Because you instantly, sin jumps to life in you whenever there's a commandment. It's the commandment that shows you you're a sinner. If I take a, a jar of pond water and put a lid on it, put it on the shelf, in three hours, that water's clear, crystal clear. All of that gump and all that mud went to the bottom of that jar, and it looks beautifully clean. The reason God allows us to be in congregation with each other is because we're going to sin against each other. Not that we're trying to sin, but when we sin each other, you, you bump my jar. And when you bump my jar, all of that gump falls back up into my life, and I look like a sinner. I look like a sinner to myself, which is embarrassing. I I look like a sinner to you. And it's the same. It is the law is necessary in our lives all the time because we must continuously realize that we're falling short because that's what makes us love our Savior. When you know yourself to be a big sinner, you love your Savior because he saved you. He is the one that stepped. So you had two covenants. The first covenant was between God and the Hebrews. And they were like, yes, we'll keep it. Yes, we'll do it. Yay, we love it. And they broke it on the first day. The second covenant, the new covenant, the the new covenant was also between God and man. But it was not between God and us. Jesus Christ stepped in front of me and said, I will obey your law. I will keep your law every moment of my life. I will love you with all my heart. I will do only towards your glory. I will never do my own. I will only do yours. And I will love other people more than I love myself. And then I will die in their penalty. And when Jesus died for me, when Jesus died for you, it was done. It was done. That's why you don't call it the new covenant. That's why you call it the new testament. Because if you write a testament, if you write a will and testament, your kids are not going to get your boat until you're dead. And the moment that Christ died for me, it was accomplished because the testator died. And now everything that was promised comes into, into legal fullness. And we are now treated as though we please God every second of our lives and that we never, ever disobeyed him, that we never sinned against him, that we were not distracted, that we didn't have two minds, two hearts. We were only as Jesus was, and I promise on a day that God will judge you against his law, and that law will crush people to powder. Any simple sinner that has trusted Christ's righteousness instead of his will be seen as perfectly like God and invited into glory for no other reason. And so I promise you think you love Jesus now. You think that you appreciate having a Savior now, you wait till you see what you missed. You wait until you see the countless thousands of deceived people doing their own little religion, standing up and sitting down and ring the bell and pour the smoke and up and down and up and down and going around and knocking on your doors so that you'll... And all that stuff because you, you have to do, 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 do. These false teachers were saying, no, 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 you have to do, 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 do. And Paul's like, oh, please, be careful. 
If you go that way, you must be perfect. You want to you meet God according to his law? Then you must never break it. It has to be perfect in his sight. So when he tells Galatians, anybody that wants to hold on to the law in order to save themselves is cursed. But glory to God, Jesus was cursed in our place because anybody, according to the own law, one of those 636 laws was anybody is, it, that's hanged upon a tree is cursed. That's one of the laws of Moses. And Jesus was hanged upon a tree and cursed in our place. So when you look at the law, you say, oh, hallelujah, I have a Savior. And when you have a renewed heart, when you have a renewed spirit, you now look at the law in a different way because that same law represents God, the real God, to us. So when he says, be holy like I am holy, it's not a trick. He's not trapping you. You're, You're saying, I want to. I aspire to obey you. I don't want to displease you. I truly want to be like you. And every day of our life, we're being renewed. And this is what the second part of this chapter is. As we look into the face of Jesus, we're renewed day after day, and we're more like him. We're given a heart that is more the writing of his law on our heart that is effective in our life, and that we have something to do in this world. And so when I look at the law... You aspire to truly obey the law, never, ever trying to get credit for it. God does not give you bonus points. If you, do you think you, you work for God as an employee? Oh, two chapters? You read two chapters today? Wow, what a, I'm going to give you a point for that. Okay? You crossed yourself as you went past the Catholic Church because somewhere in the back of that church is a piece of bread? Are you serious? Oh, that's a point. I promise that even if I worked every day of my life, I might have 16 or $17 saved up by the end of my life, and I'll find that my debt is billions of zillions of dollars. And my $16 is going to sit in my hand and rot because I will not be good enough. But to trust Christ is enough. That is enough, and he's satisfied with that. So when we, when we look later, we look with this idea that the law was, is forever, but the law was only a schoolmaster. Now, not a schoolmaster like me. I'm a, I'm a schoolmaster with no switch. I'm a powerless, neutered, toothless schoolmaster. But I promise there were schoolmasters with, that had a switch in his hand, and you, he beat it into you. And a schoolmaster was to drive you to Jesus, and that's what Paul said. It's a schoolmaster. It drives you to the Lord, but when you can then find mercy... And it's the same people. Jesus said, if you would have trusted Moses, you would have trusted me. You would have been ready. So hallelujah. So let's, uh, let's stand and, and I'd like to pray for us. Father, we want to give you glory and praise for how dazzlingly awesome you are as a savior. As a person that would live as you demanded for us in our place and then die, die for us. We want to worship you fully. We want our hearts to be alive and excited and thrilled in your presence. Would you convict us of our sin? Would you allow us to trust you, even for the first time, that we wouldn't ever try to, whatever we do, whatever our do-do-do is, um, whatever our sit-down stand-up is, that you would allow that to be removed and that you would give us the, the peace of knowing you and having fullness in you. And we love you in Christ, in Jesus' name. Amen.